Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hello, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Reimagining Love. Today, I am joined by Dr. Mark Schultz, who is the co-author of a wonderful new book, along with his writing and research partner, Dr. Robert Waldinger, called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Dr. Mark Schultz is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and the Sue Cardis PhD 1971 Chair in Psychology at Bryn Mawr College. He also directs the Data Science Program and previously chaired the Psychology Department and Clinical Developmental Psychology PhD Program at Bryn Mawr. He is a practicing therapist who received postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. His new book, The Good Life, is the focus of our conversation here on Reimagining Love, and I know that you're going to find the takeaways from this research to be both fascinating and optimistic. Because the Harvard Study of Adult Development has been collecting data for over 84 years at this point, This research offers us a rare and nuanced window into how we change over time and what actually helps us thrive. I have been citing findings from this study for many years in my teaching, so it was really incredible for me to be able to dive into all of it with Dr. Schultz. You know how I love to say relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us? Well, I cannot think of a study that backs up that statement more profoundly than the longitudinal research that Dr. Schultz and Dr. Waldinger have compiled in their new book. Their research is a gift to all of us, and the book is also such an engaging read. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. So let's just jump right into the episode. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alexander. Absolutely. You know, I can't wait to talk to you about this research, which I have been citing in my teaching and my workshops for many, many years. And to, of course, celebrate your incredible new book. But I want to start by uh, asking you the relational self-awareness question that I ask all of our guest experts. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Dr. Schultz, what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? This is a question I find challenging in some ways because I, I think about myself as a reflective person. In the book that we wrote, we talk about the importance of reflection. So there's so many cutting edges, if you will, but I'm, I'm going to pick one uh, to talk about. And, and that's the challenge that I'm certainly facing between kind of balancing efficiency and connection when it comes to connecting, particularly with work colleagues, but it also involves connecting with friends as well. So I think this was a challenge I've always experienced, but the pandemic has made it, you know, kind of acute and brought it um, sort of very clear kind of parameters and ideas about what we think we're balancing, at least. So many of my colleagues, many of the students I work with, they just want to meet virtually. It's more efficient. They don't have to put clothing on. Uh, they don't have to come to work for my colleagues. And um, I get it. I totally get that and the benefits of sort of being efficient. Um, but I also struggle with giving up that sort of connection part. And um, it's been a real challenge as we've had these moments where we think we're coming out of the pandemic and we're going to have in-person events again. People are really resisting. I understand where that resistance comes from. I'm really busy. Um, but that's a challenge. And I find myself sometimes thinking it's just easier. Let's just do the virtual stuff and we'll be efficient. We'll get stuff done. But there's there's a cost, and I also think there's a cost to efficiency as well. That that part of being efficient when it comes to working with people is really knowing them and being able to trust them. And it's harder to do that with the constraints of virtual meetings. So that's something I'm I'm struggling a lot with trying to figure out in my life, um, and certainly thinking a lot about as well. Well, thank you for bringing that up because it certainly is something that's on my mind a lot as I continue to see my clients virtually for a number of reasons, one of which certainly is efficiency and ease, but then thinking also yep. about, right, about relationships with colleagues that when I see clients remotely, I miss out on the, just the little exchanges that happen when we're refilling our water glasses between sessions and things like that. Exactly. It's all, all that down kind of informal time, the classic sort of, you know, at the, at the water cooler, but it's also the cues, you know, a lot of people have found uh, virtual therapy to be a real advantage. And I think for some people, it works terrifically. It may even work in some ways better than, than in-person therapy. But I think that there are cues that we lose when we're in that virtual world that are hard to get back in the virtual world. So emotions are stronger generally for people that are interacting with friends and colleagues. Research is beginning to show that. And there's a way in which that can have advantages because it allows us to step back a little bit. But it's also different than real life. So um, I think we're, we're maybe beginning to recognize that more and more. But I also I miss it. I feel in my, you know, kind of in my bones, I miss that in-person connection. And uh, it's made a difference. I've been teaching for close to 30 years and things are different when we're doing more of it remotely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. OK, well, I'm glad that you're going to keep wrestling with that, how to navigate yep. efficiency and connection. And as you say that, you are reminding me that I want to keep wrestling with it because I don't I don't think that the place that I'm in right now is ultimately the place that I want to be over the longer term. And that that is, I like that tension between efficiency and connection. It's a lovely way of framing it. 
All right. So you are the associate director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And this has been an incredible undertaking that started in 1938, long before you were even a that's right. A, a, a wink yeah. in your parents' eyes, right? And the, you and your good friend, Dr. Bob Waldinger, are the fourth generation of study directors. I would love for you to start us off by talking to us about what this research is and just tell us a bit of the story of this research project. Yeah, so the study started almost 85 years ago, as you suggested, in the late 30s. And it was initially two very different groups of people that we were following. So one group was almost two-thirds of the sample were boys that were living in inner-city Boston and some of the poorest, most disadvantaged neighborhoods of Boston. Um, and then the remaining one-third were not far away, but living in very different circumstances. They were undergraduates at Harvard University. And both studies, they were initially separate, but they had a common goal, which was really to think about the factors that led to human thriving. So in both samples, they were interested in why people may be doing well, particularly in the inner city sample, well, despite the challenges that they were facing. And at Harvard, they were interested in students that looked like they were going to graduate and live a good life. So it was very unusual in those times in the throes of World War II. They weren't focused on dysfunction. They were really focused on trying to think about the things that lead to a good life, to happiness and well-being. And those two cohorts, 724 individuals, were followed throughout their entire lives. So from adolescence, late adolescence, all the way into the end of their life. And we're now actually working with the children of the original participants. And we call them the second generation participants. And that includes more than 1,300 daughters and sons of the original participants. And we included the wives in the study of the original participants as the study went on. Uh, so this has been a study that's followed particular families very closely across time. And when I say closely, I mean really closely interviews, uh, repeated questionnaires every two years, visits to their homes to see what it was like to grow up there, and really interested in the lived experience of participants. It was a study that always respected what was inside people's heads and worked very hard to capture that across the years. So that's it, it, just a remarkable study, remarkable to have access to it. Um, and it can teach us so much about how people live their lives. It's amazing. It's so it's so important to have longitudinal studies, right? The vast majority of research is cross-sectional. It kind of the researchers drop in and get a glimpse of somebody's life in this moment. But what you all have done is something that is more difficult and in some ways richer. I mean, cross you know cross-sectional research is important as well. But to study the same people over time, which is what the longitudinal research model means gives us a different kind of a window into unfolding. That's exactly right. And one way of thinking about it to make it concrete is that with the second generation, we, of course, ask them about what they remember about their childhood and what it was like growing up with their parents. But we can also go back into our files and see the, the real-time data from when they were growing up that we were collecting prospectively. And we can compare those two views. And sometimes, in fact, much of the time, they don't really, they're not the same pictures that people create worlds that are different than the actual world that they grew up in. So we can ask a bunch of questions because of the longitudinal nature of the study. And it's also allowed us to explore really important questions that the field, I don't think, have been exploring, like how people change across adulthood. Yeah, we follow the same people across time. 
our early theories were that people's, you know, character and personality were basically formed by the time they were young adults. And that's not true. People change throughout their lifetime. And, and one of the great, I think, contributions of the study long before I was involved in it has been to highlight some of the changes that people experience through their adult life. The way that I, you know, as somebody who has been teaching for many, many, many years, the way that I talk about this study, you know, when I, I use it often to frame, you know, a lecture on the importance of relationships. And I oftentimes lead in with something that George Valiant, who was the third director of the study, uh, wrote in 2004, which he wrote that there are two pillars of happiness. One is love and the other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. It's the center of your brand new book called The Good Life, which is that relationships are what matters. Positive relationships are essential to human well-being. That's right. And I, I think, you know, George had a way of saying things just beautiful, those two lines that we, we love them. But the findings continued. So so Bob Waldinger and I took over the leadership of the study about 20 years ago. We continued some of this work, some of it inspired by George and some of it, in, you know, driven by ideas and interests that Bob and I had. But if we step back and kind of take the long view of the study across 84 years, it's very clear that there's one signal. If you get out of the details of particular studies and the hundreds of findings that have been produced over the years, it's that relationships drive our well-being. I think maybe the surprising part of that is that they drive not only our psychological well-being, but they're also important for our physical well-being, as we've come to figure out over the last several decades. So that's a kind of center piece of our findings. And then I, I think, you know, we entitled our new book, The Good Life, and people are often, you know, what do you mean by the good life? Is it just about happiness? And the short answer is no, it's not just about happiness. Being happy, experiencing joy, having meaning in your life is important. But the good life is filled with both sorrows and joys, that they're challenges that are inevitable in our life. So George's quote, I think, captured that idea that we we need to figure out uh, ways of being able to lean into challenges, to grow from them, to marshal the resources that help us grow from challenges. Uh, oftentimes, those are relational resources. Um, so the book is really about um, celebrating the, the joy of relationships, but also the challenges that come with life generally and the challenges particularly that we experience in our relationships as we, we go through life. It's a point that you make really early in the book, which is about the distinction between a good life happening and a good life unfolding. And there's something so hopeful about that idea that our our good life gets to unfold. And I think it ties to what you're saying before about we aren't just kind of baked when we're whatever, 18, 21, 25. So talk to us about that. Maybe just first of all, how do we shift our mindset from a good life is something that happens to a good life is something that unfolds. Yeah, I think there's a, a kind of really interesting gap there between this idea that we we all, at least I found myself in my early life, in my teens, in my early 20s, you know, obsessed with trying to figure out what the good life was and how I was going to get it. I read a lot. That was part of my academic interests were trying to figure that out. So I read sort of philosophy and sociology and psychology, trying to make sense of it. And really, what I've learned with some years now, it's a while since my teenage years, and through this research is that the good life is actually within our reach, right? Because the good life is about connecting with others, experiencing the, the joy and the meaning that those relationships give us. So one of the themes, and I think it's an optimistic one here, or hopeful one, is that People do change. People figure it out as we get older. There is some wisdom that we acquire. 
And sometimes it's by luck, uh, but oftentimes it's by some intention as well. So one of the things we can do is pay more attention to our connections to others. We, we live in an era where there are so many distractions, perhaps more than any other time that people have lived. There is a device that we carry with us all the time that distracts us from the connections that we have, important conversations that we're having. People spend, there's research that suggests in the U.S. on average, people are spending close to 10 hours a day on screens. If we stole just some of that time and devoted it to our relational health, um, we might prosper in ways that people haven't been able to. So in the book, we talk a lot about this idea of social fitness, Alexander. We, we sort of introduce this idea that's akin, it's a metaphor that's akin to physical fitness. And the key here is that we neglect our social fitness. We take things for granted. We imagine that we're just going to work things out in relationships that they don't need the kind of tending that they do require. So we talk a lot about ways to lean into relationships to uh, more intentionally create the kinds of connections that help us flourish. And that's a key idea that we just can't let it happen. We need to really nurture those connections and to figure out ways to maintain them in the best way. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You cite also the research on loneliness, that loneliness is a larger problem now than at any other time, that one in four of us reports being lonely, and that that really does so go against everything that your research has found about the importance of connection, the importance of social fitness. And one of the factors, which is that we are so at risk of being distracted and where we go with our phones likely perpetuates loneliness, right? This idea that somehow we aren't doing life the right way and that everybody else has got it figured out in a way that we don't have it figured out. That's right. And a lot of people are using phones to see what other people are doing. And the view that you get of other people is a highly curated view, right? So it's them at their most optimal times typically are doing the most exciting things. So if we look very carefully on the web, what we see is people having a great time and people, you know, on vacation, uh, all the things that I feel like I'm not doing, I can find my friends and other people doing on the web. But I think it's more complicated than that too. I mean, I, I think we're at such an interesting time socially, historically, if we think about it. So one of the things that, that being involved with the study has nurtured in me. I always had an interest in this. My family makes fun of my my love of history. But it's really interesting when you follow people through time, you also start to think about the historical epic that they lived through and what influence that might have. So our original participants grew up in the throes of the Depression. Uh, many of them served in World War II or, or the Korean War after that. 
they experienced incredible changes, telephones coming into homes that were really intrusive. But I think we're at a particular period in time where technology has become so ubiquitous and the changes are happening so quickly that there's an intrusion on not just our family lives, but our personal lives that's very different than what's happened in the past. So I worry about young people, particularly during a pandemic, who are depending largely on virtual interactions with others for learning skills that that teenagers continue to learn, how we regulate emotions, how we resolve conflict. But I think it's not just young people. As an older person, I can get into that, that kind of mode of saying this is something that the younger generation isn't figuring out. <laughs> I think people, my colleagues, people my own age, my parents are trying to figure out, because of the pandemic, how we navigate connections with others, how important that is. It's easy just to stay home, to avoid the risk. You know, COVID is maybe there are threats of COVID peaking again this winter. People are getting nervous about travel and connecting with people in real time and in real in-person connections. So it's easy to play it safe from a, you know, epidemiological standpoint, from a medical standpoint to be safe, but we also play it safe from a psychological standpoint. Why go to those meetings when the beginning it's kind of awkward and people don't know exactly what to say and whether you're supposed to make small talk or not, that we've had three years of practice avoiding those things. And I think it's become hard for us to get back into the right routine. So it's, it's a, and that way we feel like the book is well-timed. Yes. The book is about the importance of connection and also gives a lot of, you know, practical advice about things that people can do. But we're all trying to figure out, including myself, how we get back to those in-person connections in an effective and comfortable way for us. Well, the message in the book about how we continue to change and grow over time ends up being a hopeful one about how we come out of the pandemic, right? That we can, I mean, I think many, many parents are afraid of ways in which their kids look like kids who are a couple of years younger. You know, everyone looks right. a bit yeah. delayed right now. And when you're saying, you know, it's not just, it's not just our kids, it's us as well. But then we have to hold that up against the finding that we, we keep developing, we keep unfolding, we keep emerging. So these muscles are atrophy, but they aren't gone, but they're not going to come back without practice. And like I, I, the way you're saying it about like how the more we avoid, the easier it is to avoid. And so we do have to kind of push back against that complacency or that inertia, but that it's possible. I think that's right. So there, there is an optimistic message that I want to come back to and talk about that when we follow people, we see them change. We see people have connections that they haven't had for 30, 40 years in their life. And I can talk more about that. But when we also look at this historical arc of the cohorts that we studied, 90% of the students who were at Harvard that were part of our study served in World War II, and that was a challenging experience. So most of them described this experience as one of the worst, one of the most stressful experiences of their lives. They also, ironically, or, or maybe in a kind of tension to that idea, they also described it in some ways as one of their best experiences, that they developed connections with the people that they served. They had a clear sense that they were doing something important here. They were helping to save the world. And the people that they served with were people that they learned to trust. They literally put their lives in their hands. So what we see when we study these folks through time are people meeting challenges that are extraordinary challenges that are hard for, I think, particularly North Americans to imagine today. There's a war going on in the Ukraine, but that feels far away. Uh, there are wars in other places in the world. 
we've lived such a peaceful existence for many generations now that I think it's hard for people to imagine the kinds of challenges that humans have faced before. But one of the lessons is that with the right resources and support, people will grow in those challenges. They'll find ways to move forward. They'll find access to things that they didn't know that they had, abilities that they didn't know that they had. And I'm confident that we'll figure it out, but I think it will take a few years coming out of the pandemic. It's going to take a few years. And it's not to be, I think that what, what you're saying is like, we, we also, we can't take it lightly, right? This is significant for us to be, for, for you to be seeing in your data and for us to be knowing in our bones that we are slipping away from connection, that we are sometimes taking the easier road. That is a, a worthwhile like symptom and problem to pay attention to. And that you're, you're showing us that we can look at, look towards history. And to know that difficult times, like when difficult times are met with like turning towards relational resources, that they can become like part of the story, not the whole story. I think that's right. And and uh, if I were really pushing this optimistic view, which I do believe in, but I think there's even a way of talking about this is a real opportunity for young people, people in all ages to think about the kind of social life that they want to have. What kind of social universe do they want to create? Because it's been so disrupted where we have an opportunity to reconfigure the way we interact with other people, to really think hard about what's important to us, right? To get back to, in our, in our book, we talk about the basics of human relationships, what, what relationships give us. And there's so many things your listeners must know from listening to your podcast, but there, there's so many things that we get out of relationships that we kind of take for granted and we don't recognize our, our sense of who we are, the kinds of joys that we experience. Typically, we experience them strongest when we're in connection with others, the ways in which relationships help us cope with stress in our life. So there's so many things that we can derive from our relationships. And I think this is a an interesting point in history where we're all, it's a, this is the call to arms, I guess, for this generation now is, what kind of world do we want to make when it comes to our connections to others? Because we have the opportunity to recreate that world. Well, I will say that I'm encouraged. We have an 18-year-old an daughter who is a senior in high school. And her hangouts right now with her friends are they just pick a basement and they sit in the basement. And she says no one is on their phones and they just talk. And so that really feels encouraging to me. You know, that, that's, that is that she's, they're seeking each other else in that way. I think that's right. You know, you, this conversation reminds me of something. I have a, I have two boys that are in their twenties and one college was very disrupted by COVID. He was a, a sophomore in college when COVID hit. And when he went back to in-person classes, he's a physics guy too. He's not a psychologist. He's a science guy. He said to me, he said, dad, you know, one of the things I realized I miss is just being in a room with other people in which I see their whole bodies <laughs> and we're doing something in unison. And I thought, oh, thank goodness, this physics guy is figuring it out, right? That there's something that we get that we don't fully realize. And it's particularly easy for people who are anxious about connections to others to diminish and put out of sight. Um, but I think there's real value there. So your daughter and her friends have figured this out. They need to be with each other, that those connections are really vital. So one of my favorite chapters of your book, of course, is the is the chapter about intimate relationships. And uh, I loved this study that you all had done where you found a link between emotion and relationship stability. And you took these couples um, into the lab and you videotaped them talking about a recent upsetting incident. And then you tracked them five years later. So tell us a bit about that way that you used your longitudinal data to help us understand 
the connection between emotion and relationships? So these data were from a different study. It wasn't part of the Harvard study of adult development, but really interesting data. These were couples from the community, and it was a kind of very diverse sample. It was over the numbers I don't fully remember, but it was somewhere between 150, 200 couples we brought into labs in two places. My colleague Bob Baldinger is in Boston, and I've been in the Philly area for the last 25 years. And we had them talk about something that had upset them, that not just had upset them, but it really offended them. So we were trying to turn the heat up on the typical paradigm in the lab, not just talk about a revealed difference, but we wanted the partners to reveal an incident in which they felt hurt or offended in some way. And those are incidents that tend to arouse anger. So we asked folks to remember it. Um, maybe it was something their partner failed to do or something their partner had done. Everyone was able to identify an incident that had happened in the last month or two. We asked them to audio tape that, that description of it and why they had gotten upset. And we played that audio tape for the couple and asked them to talk about it and see if they could come to a better understanding about what had happened. And we videotaped it. And then we had uh, undergraduates watch the videotapes and to code for an array of emotions. These are emotions that partly come from the research that John Gottman and Bob Levinson have done, identifying a, a group of emotions as being important to the success of marriages. Um, so those emotions helped identify which of the folks were happiest at that time, but perhaps most interesting, it also predicted three years later whether those couples were still together or not. And that was the thing that was quite exciting to us I'm going to add one thing, which I think is related to the conversation that we had. I, I rarely get to talk about this, but this seems like a good example, a good place to talk about it. The undergraduates, we, we didn't have them code or rate these emotions in the standard way. So the standard way is you train them with a manual. You show them videotapes and you say, this is what sadness is. I don't know what you think sadness is or culturally what you imagine sadness is, but this is what we're talking about as sadness. Here's a prototypical example of sadness takes a lot of training. It can take up to six months to get people trained in that particular approach. We decided to do something very different. It was inspired some, by some research that someone named Bob Rosenthal had done. We said, it doesn't matter what we think sadness is. We want you to code by what your definition of sadness is. And this made some of the undergrads very uncomfortable. What do you mean? Like, I, I get to decide. And we said, yes, the scale is zero to 10. Zero is no emotion. 10 is a lot of sadness. You just rate each 30-second clip we show you how much each person was showing sadness and 15 other emotions. So these were what we call naive ratings. They weren't informed by research. These were ratings that 18 to 21-year-olds had come to understand about emotion. We used enough undergraduates, five or six of them, to code each segment that we had a reliable indication of what sadness was. So it's the ratings from these naive 18 to 21 year olds predicted whether couples stayed together or not. And what's remarkable about that is by 18 to 21, at least when we did the research, people get enough understanding of emotion that they're able to survive emotional challenges with others. They're able to navigate them in ways that they can be successful. So that, that was an encouraging piece of research. If we did that again today with 18 to oh, 21 right. year olds, I might worry a little bit about what that might be like. I'm not sure they're experiencing a lot of in-person challenge, a lot of in-person emotion, at least not at the rate that their predecessors have been experiencing. So that's a, a kind of side point, really interesting about that research. But these emotions predicted whether the couples would stay together or not, and it was with pretty high accuracy. So it was quite remarkable to us. So the emotions we experience when we're navigating 
these challenges that have to do with feeling offended or angry with our partner, obviously important to the success of relationships and important to the stability of those relationships. And you found that it's all about empathy and affection, right? That the yeah. ability to, that men and women who expressed more affectionate emotions, even during these difficult conversations, were more likely to stay together and that empathic responses really, really mattered. That's right. And, and this is a theme that continued with the research we did in the Harvard study of adult development with those folks. So when they were in their nineties, we also looked at kind of empathic responses. We've done it with other samples, but this, this ability to respond empathically. And by that, in this particular study, we meant that your partner and observers see you as trying to understand the other person. It doesn't mean that you need to get it right. So if I'm in conversation with you, um, what's important is that you have a sense that I'm trying to understand what your experience is. I may be wrong because it's hard to figure out what's going on in people's heads, but the effort is really critical. So observers were noticing that people were trying to put themselves in the shoes of the other. They were trying to understand what they might be experiencing. It wasn't that they were always right. And in fact, we did a the same sample. We did a study in which we checked whether it was the accuracy of people's understanding that was most important or the partner's perception that they were trying, which hmm. was most important. <laughs> it turns out that perceptions of trying are more predictive of marital success than whether you're accurate, whether you're accurately reading your partner's mind or not. Nowhere in that is anything about agreement, agreement with the other's perspective. So to be empathic and to be attuned and to be curious is not about agreeing with the perspective. Absolutely. That's something obviously couples learn. Some couples learn it quicker than others. It's yeah. something we teach when we work with couples. But this idea that I understand why you're so upset is a different statement than saying, I agree that mm -hmm. I did something horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very different. And learning to do that, for me at least, took some work. Sure. It took some, the, the place <laughs> I learned it, I was lucky. I learned it running couples groups because we were teaching couples this skill. And I was working with a co-partner who later became my wife. Um, <laughs> and we had to figure out how to navigate the differences we had as we were running those couples groups. So, you know, being able to say, okay, I get it while you were upset or anxious at that moment. It doesn't mean that I did something wrong necessarily, but maybe I did. Yeah. Uh, those are two different things. Yeah. 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 I'm so curious about now that you have these two generations of participants between the gen, the first generation and the second generation of these couples. I think there have been a huge number of changes in the ways that marriages look, at least on the surface. So, you know, what we see in the, this cohort originally of boys, right? And men. We saw some very, what we think about as very traditional gender roles in terms of the way they divided labor, in terms of expectations about social roles, who did what in the household, being able to talk about these were, again, men that grew up in the 20s and 30s. So being able to talk about their challenges and their emotions was something that they were socialized not to do and learned. Many of them learned, kind of fascinating to watch them in the 60s and 70s, learn that maybe this is a good thing, maybe not so bad to try. So in the new generation, we see less of those traditional kind of roles by gender. And it's quite apparent that marriage expectations have also increased that what people are hoping to get out of their relationships, maybe people have higher expectations, um, sort of love and and uh, a partner, a partner that may help with work. But we have two partners that are working now. So the expectations are more complicated. Um, so on the surface, very different. But 
as we dig down deeper, and this is one of the, I think, more fascinating things about the study, we see that there are commonalities, that if we, we get to a kind of core psychological level, we start the chapter that you were talking about, about the person next to you by talking about attachment and, and what infants experience when they're threatened by separation from their parents. We think that that individuals experience, adults experience similar things in relationships. So when people got older and they had medical threats to their health, you kind of return to a secure base. You look to your partner for support and help in navigating those medical challenges. Uh, so when we get to that basic psychological level about what people need, what's important to them emotionally, I think relationships are very similar across time. They're also very similar. Remember these two cohorts, a group grew up in the poorest neighborhoods of Boston, often without running water. And then just down the block, the remaining one-third were in privileged circumstances at Harvard with a different prospect on life. The number of commonalities of experience at that deeper psychological level is just astounding that we were surprised at how common their basic experiences are and the benefits of relationships just as important to folks in the poorest circumstances as the most privileged circumstances. It's not just our research, that's other research that shows that. So I would say, yes, things have changed a lot over the years, but at some really core level, one of the things that I, I think I've learned from this study is that we're more alike than those differences on the surface may suggest. I really like that reminder. I, I do so much of you know intergenerational dialogue, helping parents understand the relationships of their emerging adult kids and helping emerging adult kids make sense of the families that they grew up in and the relationships that they saw. And so I love that reminder that even though the context is different, you know, their parents never swiped, you know, to look for a partner, there, there are those, these elemental things. And, and when I, when I work with college students to understand what I call like their original love classrooms, you know, they, the, the deeper they go, the more they kind of sense that what they watch their parents wanting and fighting for and advocating for and struggling with are, is pretty darn similar to what they imagine wanting for themselves as well. I think that's right. It's a, we talk in the very beginning of the book about an experience that I had. So I teach at Bryn Mawr College, which is a women's college, and I've been here for 26 years now. And lots of students interested in working on research. They know about the study. They have a certain hesitation. These are all men, weren't they? They, they grew up in the 1930s. So the incident that I talk about is a student who's from South Asia, and she said she was interested in studying early childhood experiences and how they have an impact on later experiences. And I said, terrific, we have great data for you. You can do this with the Harvard study that I'm, you know, helping to run. And she said, well, they're just very different than me. And they're, they're kind of from an era that I can't really relate to. So I said to the student, I said, why don't you go home? I'm going to give you two case studies to take a look at about their experience when they were 18 to 21, similar in age to you. And then you can see a little bit about what their early adulthood is like, and we can talk. And before the next meeting, the student said, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to work with the, these <laughs> folks that these men had their, you know, their skin color is different than yeah. mine. The yeah. age was so different. I wasn't worried about fighting in a war. The war, the war was starting to pick up. They were worried about how that was going to impact their lives, but their worries about whether they were going to find meaning in their lives, whether they were going to find a partner. I can relate to all of those things, right? <laughs> so I, I think we kind of forget, particularly in this era where appropriately we're attending to disparities and differences among us, that there are also some similarities that we share, particularly at a core level that are really important. 
I want to talk a little bit about one of the findings that was especially important to me as somebody who is actively emptying my nest, which is that your research found what, what other studies have found as well, that there's a, a pretty predictable drop in relationship satisfaction around the birth of the first child. But your research also found the corresponding increase as, you know, as the youngest turns eight about the, the empty nest. Well, both parts of it, the, the sort of dip that's predictable and the boost that's predictable and what that means for us. Yeah, and there are two findings in here, and I'm, I'm going to geek out a little bit because I think it's worth the detail here. It's really interesting. So we were able to follow people across their entire life and ask them about marital satisfaction. So most of the ideas that we have about the arc of marriages across life really have to do with the cross-sectional studies that we talked about at the beginning. So it's a slice of one person's life different than another person's life at each age. Or we ask people retrospectively about sort of when was the best time in your marriage. So one of the cool things is that we do find this U-shaped curve and the U is exactly as you described that marriage, marital satisfaction tends to go down right after the birth of a child. I've been involved in other research that has made it very clear that that's pretty normal for folks to experience. And then the question is, does it pick up? And in our data across that lifetime, there's a U-shaped recovery. People's marriages begin to improve and it improves right around the time that their children leave the nest. So one is the finding about this U-shaped curve, but the other part is particularly interesting to me. There is a little boost, as you described, that that's different for each couple that happens right around the time that their youngest child turns 18. So that we set kind of artificially as a time when their children might leave the nest. And the size of that boost predicts how long people live. So the bigger <laughs> that boost is, so the bigger the boost in satisfaction you get when your youngest child is turning 18, beginning to embark on adulthood, the larger that link is, the longer you live in the data that we have, which is remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah, it's another sign about the lasting impact of relationships. You know, we, we've tried to think about why that might be. And here's the explanation that we like, that we think might be happening. I've been through the empty nest. It got disrupted by COVID. My wife and I were enjoying the beginnings in the empty nest. And then both of our <laughs> kids came back home for a little while. You had a second little you. <laughs> we had a second little you, although it was a kind of exceptional, extraordinary time that we'll yeah. talk about for a long time. So, you know, we both, we all needed to return to our nest, feel safe. We figured out ways to, you know, be together 24 hours a day again as with adult children, which was interesting. One of the things that, that we think may be going on is that couples who are able to turn toward each other, when they suddenly have more time in their lives, their daily routine isn't determined anymore by driving kids to experiences, worrying about when your kid's going to come home at night if they're out with friends, that they're able to turn towards each other in a way that allows them to create new meaning and new experiences and to intentionally talk about what are the things that we've put on the back burner for a while that we want to do again? Maybe there's a sport that we used to do together or a dance class that we've always talked about taking. And it seems like the couples that are able to lean in towards each other reap some benefits, not just to their marriage, but to their longevity as well. It's such an important message because it is, I feel, you know, I feel both uh, moments of exhilaration and moments of, of fear, frankly, around like, who are we to each other when we aren't completely organized around family life? And so your research really is, um, it's a reminder again, to be intentional about it, right? That it's not that we have to really be 
investing and be a bit creative and be putting energy, as you're saying, turning towards each other. I think that's right. And I, I don't want to give the impression at all to listeners that this is kind of magical, that, yeah. that it's because this was a long term. We were studying 65 years of marriage. So it's not that you figure out the day that your child leaves or if you're waving goodbye, that moment when you wave goodbye and they're at college and you both feel that kind of sadness. That's not the moment maybe that you're going to turn to each other and figure out the new activities. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You're going to help each other through it. Uh, but it's it's a process. It's a transition, just like all transitions in life. And part of it, I think, begins to come with this idea, you know, we have more freedom now. What, what do we want to do with it? Uh, again, it's about being reflective about where you're at. What are the things that you've missed? What would you like to do more of? And recognize that there are parts of it that are hard. So for each of us, we missed our kids uh, as well. We miss them not being there and seeing them, but we develop new routines with them over time. Again, not right away. I'm, I'm smiling as I'm saying this. I'm thinking about, you know, when my older son first went to college, we kind of wrestled back and forth about how often we were going to talk to him and how we were going to do it. And then we figured it out and we got, you know, comfortable enough that we have a routine now that he's 25 and in another city, we have a routine that works for him and works for us. But at the beginning, we couldn't figure it out. We had trouble. We had to try different things. Right. Because it's your first time. It's, it's everyone's first time going through it. Exactly. You know, it's, it's your exactly. first time. And, and one of the things, again, I'm sure you must talk about this a lot in, in your teaching and the podcast you know, relationships are tricky for all sorts of reasons, but one is that none of us stay the same. We're, we're not sort of <laughs> the same person always. So as we were navigating the empty nest, our son in particular was navigating young adulthood and trying to figure it out for himself. And fortunately, he's grown and changed in neat ways. So we need to adjust our strategies and the ways in which we connect with him. And that's true in close relationships like marriage as well, that we're changing and that's a good thing, but that involves readjusting. We have to kind of readjust the ways we connect and what we assume. And certainly the empty nest is one of those times. It's a big transition. Well, and for him with you as well, right? He had to, he had to start to see you, put you in a different place and start to develop an, an adult to adult relationship exactly. with you. It's about your, yeah. per, how you experience and perceive him and how he experienced, you know, you and, and his mom. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And that, that's something we, we highlight a lot. It's really important to both Bob Waldinger and myself. This idea that, you know, the place you are in life is a perch that you have on life. And, and with that comes different priorities, different things are important. So you talked about generational differences that have to do with the epic that we grew up in. Um, but our development too, our particular challenges that we have in our life affect the things that are important to us and how we see the world. So being attentive to that, being curious about that, you know, so. I don't know. You know, I have all these interesting conversations. I'm, I'm lucky I'm surrounded by 18 to 21 year olds that I teach that I work uh-huh, with. Uh-huh. And, you know, they teach me all sorts of incredible things. You know, like, what do you mean you're, you're talking to your parents, you know, seven times a day or you're texting them, yeah. you know, 24 times a day? Um, cause that's different than the relationship that, that we've had with our kids. I said, what, what is that like for you? Well, you know, my mom has had some health issues. And for me, it's really important to know literally that she's okay. So the texts aren't really fancy texts or anything like that, but it's just a kind of jolt of knowing that we're each okay. So we're all different and particularly around different developmental challenges that we have. 
our life views change in ways that may challenge the connections, the existing rituals and connections that we have with others. We need to adjust to those. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mark, I want to let you know that I, I had tears in my eyes for much of the time that I read this book. Oh, it is, wow. it's, it's so nourishing. It's so good, you know, in the true sense of the word good. It's a, it's a good book. And I don't always read the acknowledgments section of a book, mm. but I read, I read your acknowledgments section, you know, so closely. It's, it's so clear. You and Bob both write this book with uh, a kind of gratitude that is really contagious. And, and you say towards the end, that a study that slowly uncovered the value of relationships was itself sustained in the end by relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think, you know, writing a book is a, is a, is a, takes a lot of work and it's something we did during the pandemic. We worked really hard for two and a half years on the book and Bob and I have known each other for 30 years now. And it's a relationship that has grown over the years. Um, he was initially my boss when I was in training. I'm a clinical psychologist. He was the training director of the hospital that I was working in. His wife was one of my first supervisors. So we navigated initially that kind of weird relationship where he was kind of the boss and I was the student, but I knew some things that were helpful to him as he was embarking on his research career. And then, you know, we had babies and we helped each other through challenging times. Uh, but, but importantly, Bob and I, for the last 30 years, initially in person, when we were both in Boston, we met once a week to have lunch together and talk about life and our research. We spend an hour and a half to three hours every week on the phone or Zoom these days. Um, and some of it is about work and we try to efficiently deal with that so we can spend time connecting with each other. So that's one of the relationships that's nurtured this book. But writing the book has made me very reflective and nostalgic for important people in my life. So one of the people that I, I thank in the acknowledgments is an old friend that died 15 years ago that was like a super connector for my friends. This is someone who I grew up with and he was the person that would get us together all the time. So when he died, it was very sad for me, but also worried about who would become that glue right in my friendship group. So I've been reflecting a lot about the connections that have been of value to me. And certainly intellectually thinking hard about, you know, all the people who've taught me things that have gone into the book. So, yeah, those acknowledgments were fun to write and very meaningful for us. Is there a favorite takeaway or a favorite moment of the book that you really want to make sure that we that we honor and celebrate and shine a bright light on before we wrap up? Yeah, so I'm going to do three quick hits because they're, they're okay, all important. It. I think I can do Good. them quick. Um, okay. You know, one of the things we do in the book is we, 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 the book is research based. It, it builds on science and evidence, but we try and deliver the science through stories. You really and do. And that's just a lesson that we learned that people take in stories much more easily than they can read through a study. And not everyone is equipped to, to read a study. So this is a book that tells people stories. Some of them are incredibly moving. These are participants that we've gotten to know and their lives are just inspiring in many ways. A second is this idea that it's just not too late, that when we study people across eight decades, one of the magical things we see is people changing in their sixth or seventh or eighth decade of life, suddenly being able to do things right that they had really struggled with doing right before, including being able to make connections. So there's stories in the book about people in their 70s that change their lives in meaningful ways that for the first time in maybe 50 years, they find themselves happy which is quite remarkable. 
And then I think the, the last thing is this overarching theme about the value of connections. If we think about life, you know, our relationships are really what makes life meaningful. It's, it's the, the kind of part that gives life its depth and connection. So we, we quote, you know, it's from uh, something that John Kabat-Zinn quotes, but it's from Zorba the Greek about the, the full catastrophe. Life is filled with, as we started by talking about, life is filled with both challenges and joys, you know, sorrows and successes. And the folks that thrived across the eight decades that we studied them are the folks that really leaned into life. They didn't timidly sit out and avoid relationships. They leaned into them, which means they experienced loss. They experienced disappointment. They got angry at times, but they also were able to take advantage of the benefits that relationships give us, the many benefits. So those are the three points I would leave with. Wonderful. Oh, I love the the stories in the book. I have one story that just is sitting like right here in my heart and I'm not, I don't want to say it out loud. It was like, Oh, so it is. Yeah. And you, and you do that throughout the book. You share these stories that, as you said, they, they help us learn. You have done such a service with this book oh, by, by teaching us and also by reminding us, you know, who, who we are and, and what matters. Thank you. You're very kind. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to wrap us up. Um, we're going to have links in the show notes to The Good Life, which is available wherever books are sold. We'll have links to bookshop.org because we love to support our local independent booksellers. What else do you, any other resources or places you want to direct people to learn more about you and the book? We have a website for the book, thegoodlifebook.com. And we also have a website for the study. So the Harvard Study of Adult Development, people can go to those places to learn more about the book, the study, about Bob and I. Yeah, those are good places to start. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to be here with us today. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to you, Dr. Schultz, for joining me here on Reimagining Love. I love that this body of research points us once again toward the people we love and reminds us that caring for others and letting ourselves be cared for is the key to a fulfilling and healthy life. I know that you are going to be eager to check out The Good Life after hearing a bit about the findings and the wisdom it contains in this conversation. So you can find the link to order your copy in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University.